invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 113. That's found on page 603 for some who need a page number. Psalm 113, before, and as you're turning there, before we read it, I just want to make a few comments on it. Psalm 113 is known as a Hallel Psalm. That's H-A-L-L-E-L, Hallel. Uh, It means praise in Hebrew. And these were psalms used in Jewish liturgy, um, perhaps during the time of celebrating of Passover, where uh, the Hebrews would have very high-spirited, joyful expressions that they would give uh, in their praise and thanksgiving uh, to God. And uh, this very well may be one of the hymns that Jesus and the disciples sang at the Last Supper, because Psalm 113, all the way to Psalm 118, comprises this, what we call the Hallel section of the book of Psalms. Um, and this psalm this morning is going to be a very good reminder of uh, the faith and trust that we as God's people place in him, and that in his divine intervention in our lives, we revere him, we give him all the glory alone. So that's why we're going to be looking at that last sola of the Reformation, soli deo gloria. Turn your attention to Psalm 113. It's the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us now as we peer closely into your holy word. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to see him and his love, grace, and mercy. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. S-D-G. That's an acronym, and I think you can already guess what it stands for. Soli Deo Gloria. But those three letters, S, D, and G, are letters found and signed after a famous composer's name, at the end of a famous piece of a written work. I'm talking about the Baroque composer George Friedrich Handel, (laughs) Handel, uh, a very deeply religious man whose Christian faith influenced his musical works. We can think of many of his published manuscripts and compositions. Perhaps the most famous and beautiful oratorio he ever created is what we're familiar with, um, uh, The Messiah. Technically, it's just called Messiah, not the Messiah. But Messiah, if you were to look at the manuscript that he created, at the very end, it contains a cryptic signature, S-D-G, following his name, Soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. That very short motto is going to give us insight into Handel's life and his personal beliefs, his creative motivations. He was a very devout Lutheran, 
And so Handel viewed the gifts that he had in music as God-given talents to be used for divine glory, not for his own purposes and selfish reasons. And so that's why he signed all of his compositions with SDG, giving credit to God alone as the source for his creative uh, aspirations and achievements. And really, at its core, the practice of Handel ascribing glory to God alone, uh, it really reflects Handel's faith despite all the trials that he went through and that he endured. Uh, He had public failure, as many of those composers back then did. He had a stroke that temporarily impaired his ability to perform and to compose. And he had that stroke before he composed Messiah. He was involved in a coach crash, not a car crash, but he was involved in a coach crash in 1750. He had cataracts and eventually went blind, and this is really unfortunate, after a botched eye operation in 1751. And that was when he stopped composing. And then eventually Handel died in London on April 14, 1759. And the last musical performance that he heard on April 6 of that year was Messiah. You can only imagine him sitting there blind, hearing his work being performed, but then remembering how he signed that composition at the very end. S-D-G. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. Well, when we reflect on the glory and majesty of God, Psalm 113 gives us great insight into why we should glorify God and his holy name. We're going to see two primary reasons emerge for praising this great God. We're going to see in verses 1 through 3 that God is transcendent in his majesty. But then we're also going to see in the subsequent verses after that how God draws himself near to us in compassion. So God is both transcendent, but he is also near as well. And it's because of those two things that we give glory to God alone. This psalm, um, it, it reminds us when we do read it that the praise that we're called to give doesn't always flow freely from our lips. Um, We become overly comfortable in our daily routines, and we forget to honor God as Scripture reveals him. Adoration, thanksgiving, those words, they may fade from our vocabulary when life seems to be going okay. Well, we need to recognize that just as those who were singing this psalm were vulnerable, needy people we ourselves recognize the human condition of weakness and a dependence that we sing to God in response to what he has done for us. And that's what the, the Hebrews would have been reflecting on in Psalm 113 so long ago. We see our unity with them, that historic community of the saints, praising the same mighty yet merciful God. And with that, we gain a perspective on his majestic glory and how he draws near to his people. 
Well, let's start by looking in our first few verses here. We glorify God for his majesty. What better way to begin glorifying God for his majesty than opening with the words praise the Lord that we see immediately. That word praise, how many times is it mentioned just in verse 1? Three different times in that single verse, really highlighting the importance of praising God. Uh, That phrase, praise the Lord, you sang it already this morning in Hebrew. Did you know that? Does anyone know what word it was? Hallelujah. You sang Hebrew this morning. Tap yourself on the back. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. It's a combination of the words praise, hallel. Remember, this is a hallel psalm. And then yah, which is a rendition of the Hebrew word Yahweh. Um, Many believers have sung and spoken that word countless times throughout their lives, perhaps without even realizing that they were saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah. And when we say hallelujah, we are specifically praising God in his supreme position as a covenant Lord over his people and over our lives. So by starting off with an enthusiastic call to praise, the psalmist draws our attention to immediately glorifying and worshiping God for his majestic and magnificent majesty. Well, who specifically in this text is being called to praise? Verse 1, again, specifies, praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Specifically, the ones who would be singing this psalm are the faithful covenant community of the nation of Israel. But even the word servant, really, as as an identifier, really describes their position before God. They are the ones who have received God's promises, and now, in gratitude, as those called to obedience, render God praise and glory. And they do indeed praise his name, as the end of verse 1 indicates. Now, you'll notice as well in your text that that word LORD is in all caps. We've gone through this before in... uh, other messages before, but just by way of reminder, when you see the word Lord, the name Lord, all capitalized in Scripture, that is the name Yahweh, which is derived from God's revealing his name to be I Am. Scholars have noted over the centuries that when God reveals his name in that way, that there are two key characteristics and attributes of God that are contained in that name. God's self-existence and his self-sufficiency. Together, all others are dependent upon um, God for their life, breath, and existence. And that God is not dependent on anyone. This is the name of the Lord that was revealed when God made promises to Israel to be their God and that they would be his people. Promises that carried over into the New Testament as well. Well, verse 2 says that this name is to be blessed from this time forth and forevermore. One author put it very interestingly. He says, there is to be a limitless continuity of God's praise. A limitless continuity of God's praise. In other words, our praise to God should never have an expiration date. 
Our worship of God should be as limitless and as endless as God himself is. Why is it possible that we can have the confidence to be able to do that? Because we read in Scripture that God himself does not change. Prophet Malachi declares, this is a beautiful passage of Scripture, Malachi 3.6, where it just simply says, For I, the Lord, do not change. God's character remains steadfast. His promises stand firm. And his love for us is everlasting. So we can have confidence that just as God remains unfaltering, our praise and the glory that we give to him should also continue endlessly and never change because he is unchanging. Day after day, year after year, our songs of praise should ring out to God knowing that he is eternally worthy to be glorified. But the praise we give to God uh, continues not just in, that, in a time duration, but when it comes to spatial dimensions as well. If you read in verse 3, uh, the praise of the Lord's name should extend from one horizon to the other. Verse 3 says, From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Now, at first, that might sound like time because we always associate the rising and the setting of the sun as time um, lengths. But what is happening in this passage is that this is talking about space. It's talking about horizon to horizon. Wherever the sun is setting, somewhere in the world, the sun is rising. We sometimes take for granted how big this world uh, actually is. So God's glory is to be praised at all times and in all places. And certainly, we can hope and we should hope and pray for that to be made manifest now, but that will be certainly made manifest in ultimate glory. That one day, God's name would be praised from east to west across the entire world. But let's not wait until then. Let's do so now. What we're really getting at here is that we ought uh, to praise God not just at appointed times or in designated places, but everywhere and always. His glory fills the heavens and the earth, and so our worship must extend throughout all creation. In the busyness of life, it can be easy it can be easy, and I fall into this trap too. It can be easy to um, confine our praise to Sunday mornings and to mealtime prayers. How many of us have fallen into that during the week? The Lord desires more than scraps of our time and attention in that way that we've carved out for ourselves. He is worthy of constant exaltation and never-ending songs of thanksgiving and joy. This is a lifestyle of worship that we are called to now, not just today, not just on Sundays, but Monday through Saturday and then including Sunday. Not just here at church, but also at home and at work. In our words and in our deeds, our attitudes and our actions. May praise for our great God be ever on display 
in our lives. And then when Christ returns, the whole earth will resound with that mighty proclamation of praise to the King of Kings. All nations will worship him. And until that day, may we give glory to God alone, extending it to the furthest reaches of our lives wherever we be. Consider just the bubble that you yourself live in right now, whether that's here in Black Oak, Griffith, Cherville, Merrillville, Valparaiso, Dyer, Crete. God is pleased to plant you where you are and to smell the pleasing aroma that your life offers as a living sacrifice of praise. He delights in that. Take comfort in that. Let us heed the call of the psalmist here. Let us commit ourselves to life as what you could call whole life worshipers, praising God from dawn to dusk, sunrise to sunset. Soli Deo Gloria. But Jared, you may ask, I don't feel like glorifying God. Uh, I don't feel like glorifying God because I don't know if he'll listen. Uh, I, I really don't know if he cares. Um, I don't know if God even wants to hear my praise to him. Well, the remainder of our text speaks to that concern. And as we'll see in a moment, we're going to see the compassion that the Lord has for you. This great God who is majestic on high and yet comes and draws near to us. And when we see that, we won't know to do anything else but to glorify him and to know that he receives your praise. Verses 4 through 6 highlight once again the majestic awesomeness of our great God. Here we come to, once again, reflect on God's majestic glory and moving into his abounding compassion. The Lord our God, yes, he is exalted on high. He's enthroned uh, in heaven, transcending all earthly realms. From his lofty position, he surveys his creation. But God does not remain distant. No, he stoops down to be near his children. This is what we call God's condescending to us. Though he reigns on high, the potter sees to it that he looks on the welfare of his jars of clay. That's you and me. The potter looks upon the welfare of his jars of clay. And there's two ways that our text illustrates this in our text in a very beautiful way. What's so awesome about these next few verses is that when we read about them, they're highlighting God's power to deliver people from circumstances that they have absolutely zero power to be able to overcome on their own. It's full of grace. Let's look at those two in turn. Verses 7 through 8. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. Now we see that word uh, poor, and that, um, that word poor seems obvious to us, and yet there are many definitions and descriptions of this word in the Psalter. Um, here in our text, it describes economic deprivation, having no financial or economic resources to sustain themselves in their livelihood in society. And because of that, they're subjected to exploitation and oppression. 
and they find themselves in an ash heap. Ash heaps in ancient Israel were the epitome of poverty and degradation. It was literally the place where ashes from cooking fires were dumped along with other waste and garbage. So to be laid low in the ash heap was to experience humiliation and scorn from all those who were to walk by and look upon you in your state of misery. They have no capacity, these people, these poor in our text, they have no capacity to deliver themselves from this place of stagnation. Therefore, their deliverance and survival are dependent on who? The Lord himself. And so what does he do? What does God do? He makes them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. Notice there too, you might have missed that. The princes of who? The princes of his people. God takes the desperate and the needy from the dregs of society and he brings them into the inner circle of the covenant community that they already find themselves in and places them in a community of dignity and of honor no longer to be ridiculed. The wonderful picture of God's grace to them. And then in verse 9, he gives the barren women a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Consider the great sorrow that barrenness would have brought to women of ancient Israel. In those times, for an Israelite woman to be barren and unable to bear children was a true, true misery. The ability to bear children was the chief means by which a woman could contribute to the life of her whole family. Through childbearing, she consummated her love for her husband and brought new life into the world. And children of families in ancient Israel were highly and deeply desired as they would work on the family farm and continue to ensure its continuance for generations to come. Furthermore, by bearing children, women contributed to the life of the Israelite community. You can think about it. Each and every single baby that is born in ancient Israel provided another future citizen of the covenant community. The survival and growth of that community depended on women bearing children, depended on fruitful mothers bringing forth the next generation. And so you can imagine the various accounts that we read of in Scripture of barren women in ancient Israel. You can imagine the great grief that Hannah and other barren women in Scripture experienced. Their chief earthly purpose was denied to them. It was cut off. They were unable to fully bond with their husbands or partake in the, the raising up of the next generation in Israel. Their lives were marked by incompleteness and shame. But thanks be to God, we know Hannah's story doesn't end with despair that we read of in 1 Samuel. Through her, her faithful prayers, God opens her womb, grants her request, and blesses her with a son, Samuel who would grow to become a great prophet. There's a very interesting wordplay that goes on in these verses. Verse 9 literally translates to, he causes the barren woman of the family to dwell or to sit as a joyous mother of children. 
In verse 5 of our text, look back on that verse. In verse 5, where's the Lord? He sits on high. The God who sits on high is in fact the only one who can make a place for the poor to sit with the princes and for barren women to sit in a house surrounded by children. Consider that for a moment. That's the compassion of the Lord right there. Perhaps this morning in this congregation, in this family, there are those who struggle financially. And it can be easy to overlook their hardship and to just assume that they need to work harder. And yet we are called to see them as God sees them with compassion and as his beloved children worthy of dignity. Perhaps some women in this place this morning have experienced the heartache of longing for children or perhaps of losing children in the womb. You month after month lift up prayers to God, waiting in hope, only facing disappointment. The joyful experience of growing life just always just seems out of your reach and your prayers just feel like they're hitting the roof of your house and just falling back into your lap. And for some here in this place, God has heard your prayers. He has granted you the blessing of bearing children in due time. But for those who have not, they need to be ministered to very carefully and need to be enfolded into this family and to experience the compassion to be the hands and feet of Jesus to them, knowing that they have a loss that they know will be with them in perpetuity. For some, perhaps, that opportunity to bear children never came. And for some of the financially destitute here in this place, the prospect of accruing any sort of wealth just might not happen. But what are those circumstances supposed to remind us of? These verses of sitting the poor with princes and healing the barren shows us that the Lord does things like this, implying that this is, um, rather than implying that this is what he does in every case. But take heart for those who need to hear this. Even if you never experience those things, God is still that compassionate God towards you. Even if you never see a dollar in the palm of your hand or cradle your own daughter in the crook of your arm. Because our compassionate God does not look upon his children and assess worth based on the content in a man's wallet or the condition of a woman's womb. He is a compassionate God who assesses your worth based on who you are in Christ. Congregation, the glory and compassion of God displayed in Psalm 113, it points us to the ultimate revelation of his majesty and compassion in Jesus Christ. We think of the language of being poor and of being barren. 
Though we are poor in spirit, broken and bound by sin, Christ lifts us up out of the dust and ash heap of a broken life, and he takes us through his death and resurrection, something that we could never do. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. He brings us into his kingdom as adopted sons and daughters, granting us, thinking of that language of princes now, a royal inheritance, a royal priesthood. Though you could say we are barren and unfruitful on our own, Christ makes our lives fruitful and full by grafting us into him. We can abide in him and bear spiritual fruit to the glory of God. Whatever hardship or sorrow you face this morning, whether it be financial depletion or yearning for the day when you could have children of your own, find comfort and hope in Christ because he identifies with your struggles. He endured poverty, grief, and rejection. And yet he conquered the grave and he reigns victorious and majestically extending compassion to all who trust in him. In your poverty of spirit, he enriches you with his grace and he he grants you spiritual fruitfulness. Turn to him in faith. He will lift you up and grant you dignity as his beloved child. As we receive such astounding mercy from our great God, how then can we not respond in praise? Look at how the, the text ends. Ends right where it began. Praise the Lord. May our hearts beat to the drum of thanksgiving for God's transcendent majesty and his imminent compassion displayed supremely in Jesus. May all that we do point to the glory of Jesus Christ, our mighty King and compassionate Savior. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we read your word, and we see your transcendent majesty. And if it were just that, Father, in some ways we could be a lot like other religions, but Father, you have come near us in Jesus Christ, which is not like any other religion. Father, you have come near us in Jesus, and by his Spirit you speak words of mercy and grace to us. And that is put on in the most fullest display in his crucifixion. And in his death and resurrection, we are taken through. And Father, we are brought before you as your adopted sons and daughters. Help us to be bold in proclaiming that good news and to give you alone the glory for all that you have done for us. Father, we pray for those this morning who need you in so many mighty ways, perhaps in the two very distinct ones that we looked at this morning. Father, should it be your will, may you grant them those things. And Father, if it not be your will, show them, Lord, that ultimately the relationship with Jesus Christ is what matters the most. May we be his hands and feet as we seek to minister to those in our community in this way. Pray that you would fill us with your spirit to be able to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.